Hello everyone, this is Andre from The Mental Health and I'm here with Professor Warren Binford who's just given a talk here at the Global Alliance for Behavioural Health and Social Justice Conference here in Baltimore. Hi Warren, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. So that was fantastic, I thought, your talk. Um, you covered so much ground and it was challenging for the audience here. I thought I'd start off by just asking you what you think the current climate is here in the US for children. I think that the climate here in the U.S. is is very challenging, that we've seen in the founding of the country that children were basically viewed as chattel and is true with so many of the structural biases that we've seen in American society. That view of children as chattel, I think, has continued until this day, that children very much are viewed as a parental responsibility and that we don't seem to view the nation or the state or the local communities as really having any direct responsibility for child health and well-being. And so that, that's frustrating and discouraging, but I think it's time for it to change. And you spoke about Ubuntu in your talk, I Became Me Through You. Can you explain where that comes from and what that concept means to you? Yeah. So I was um, in living in South Africa in 2012, and that's where I was first introduced to that the concept of Ubuntu, which means that basically we become fully human through each other, that we define ourselves through our relationships with each other, and that really resonated with me. And and part of what surprised me was today after the talk that I found out that one of my role models, uh, Gary Melton, used to talk about that same concept, and I did not know that until after the talk. And, and so it was really wonderful to feel that I'm a part of a community here at Global Alliance that focuses on the importance of relationship in defining ourselves, the importance of listening to each other, seeing each other, honoring each other's dignity. And, and, and so that, that concept originally came to me in South Africa, but clearly is a global one and one that the people in this conference are already familiar with and that has been a guidepost for them. So that, that, that made me feel very encouraged. And you took that concept through the talk, talking about the connection that children have with other people in society, with their parents and guardians and family members, with wider trusted adults. Can you say something more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the research clearly shows us that children's health and well-being um, is primarily initially influenced within the family setting. And so there's no question that while we see children as individuals, that we see children as individuals embedded within a natural social group, the family, which tells us that we need to support both children individually and their family so that the family can nurture the the child's health and well-being. Um, But then beyond that, we know from the latest research that came out in 2019 from a team at Johns Hopkins led by Christy Bethel that children also develop resilience through their community interactions, through predictable community traditions um, that they're able to participate in. So we need to not only support individual children, their families, we also need to support communities. And then, you know, I think that 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 raises the question of whether or not we're doing that right now as a nation. And by almost every measure, we are not. We're looking at a widespread uh, behavioral health crisis among children and youth. We are looking at families that are uh, unstable, 
that are you know feeling threatened that they're not able to meet children's needs we're looking at a lack of safety for children in their communities in their schools in playgrounds and so then the question that is posed is how do we change this how do we better support children within the context of families and communities and I think that that's what calls us into a national response calling on the um, national policy to enter into relationship with children and that's what led to some of my proposals here today. And you spoke about us adultifying children when it's convenient and infantilizing them when it's convenient. Mm -hmm. Can you say something more about that for us? Yeah, that that basically we don't want to give children and youth too much power because we don't entirely respect them and trust them, that rather than seeing them as human beings, we see them as what Michael Friedman, the um, renowned international children's rights expert from the UK, refers to as human becomings, that they're less than fully human, and so we don't want to give them full human rights. And so that's what I meant by we infantilize them. We don't give them the right to vote. We don't give them the ability to make decisions about their lives and their bodies. And, and, um, and this is the infantilizing that we do when it's convenient to us. Um, the adultifying is really on the flip side of this. And we see this with children that we think are out of control. We tend to see, for example, black and brown children as adults, even though they are clearly legally and biologically children and youth. Um, but we are threatened by them and their power, and so we uh, adultify them in order to put the constraints on them that we normally uh, would consider so severe that we would um, reserve those constraints for only adults. And, and so those are a couple of examples of how and why we infantilize children at times and adultify them at others. So what are you proposing in terms of children's rights? What needs to change? Yeah, I think first and foremost, we need to accept the fact that when people don't have a voice, when they don't have a seat at the table, that they are preyed upon, that they are ignored, that they are marginalized. We saw this in you know previous periods in American history with regard to blacks and men who didn't own property, women, uh, Native Americans, that all of these groups were denied the right to vote, were disenfranchised because they were deemed incapable of voting. And yet today, all of them, at least in theory, they don't always have adequate access, but they, you know, have a legal right to vote. Um, I think that we need to extend suffrage to children to give children the right to vote because if we do not empower children and families to make sure that their interests are represented um, in on in the national venue that we will continue to have policies that and politicians who ignore children it's you know a, a counter example to that is really seniors that seniors have the right to vote. A lot of social programs were extended to uh, seniors in the post-depression era um, at the same time that lots of social programs were extended to children. But over time, the children's programs were whittled away at, whereas the seniors' programs were um, protected, if not expanded, in some ways. And I believe, and and the um, dominant analysis is that seniors, as a political body, were able to defend their interests uh, and and their programs, and and children have not. So I think that, first and foremost, we need to recognize children's right to be heard in in national politics. Um, 
the second thing that I propose is that there needs to be a cabinet position, a secretary for children here in the United States, whose responsibility is in all government matters, <clears throat> including decisions that are being made by the executive branch, working with Congress, that we need to have someone whose sole job is to make sure that children's interests are protected in all policy matters being considered at the national level. That, of course, would be accompanied by a department for children, which would significantly expand on the limited administrations and departments that we have now that touch on, on children's interests. Um, and then in addition to that, I propose an independent non-political appointment, which would be a federal child, child advocate or uh, ombuds, depending on whatever language that you want to use. And that person wouldn't be holding to any individual uh, president or any individual cabinet, but would be free to respond with integrity to the needs of the children because that's the population that the advocate would be obligated to respond to. And on this issue of voting specifically, just to be clear, are you suggesting that we lower the voting age or are you suggesting that all children can vote? And how would that work practically? Yeah, so all children would have the right to vote. And then the question really is, is how would they be capable of exercising their right to vote? Clearly, um, youth... 16 and up, for example, could be presumptively capable of voting. And, and I would recommend that we would implement universal civics education throughout the educational experience for people of all ages to make sure that people understood the inherent responsibilities of the right to vote as well as an understanding of current events and the issues that voters have to make decisions on in selecting their representatives in government. And, and so there'd be a presumption that youth 16 and older would be able to independently exercise the right to vote. Um, for children under 16, I would suggest that the presumption should be that the children's interests would be represented by their parents, but with a legal obligation not to simply advance the parents' own political interests, but rather using a substituted judgment mo model. The parents would be legally obligated to step into their children's shoes and say, what would my children want? What do I believe if I were to put myself in this point in time in their shoes as a seven-year-old, a 14-year-old, whatever the stage in their childhood is, you know, how they would want us to vote. And the reason for that is if you look at certain issues like climate change, we know that as people get, you know, further along in their lifespan, they care less about issues like climate change because it's not going to affect them or not very badly in the years that they have left. And so obligating, you know, someone like me who's middle-aged to put myself in the shoes of my 12-year-old that I need to weigh more heavily the effects of climate change on how I believe that, that she would vote. So basically, representative voting through parents through the age of 15 and presumptive voting capabilities being assigned to youth 16 and 17 years old. We had a really interesting discussion in the UK around the time of the last general election and also around the time of the vote on leaving the European Union because the same kind of statistics were coming out. If we lower the voting age to 16, we aren't going to leave Europe we aren't going to have a conservative mm -hmm. government. We're going to have a socialist yep. government. Um, how do you respond to the response to this, which is very much, you know, she's saying this because she wants her way in terms of politics and government, yeah. you know, lowering it because that's your agenda? Yeah. Well, I think that actually you should shift that analysis and ask why those in power want to deny over 20% of the population the right to vote because if you're 
entire population were to vote, you would not be the choice because you're not representing the entirety of the population. You are only representing, you know, that minority of people that elect you. And, and so it's really rigging the system. Like, why would we allow that, politici- that, that group of politicians in the U.K. to hold on power that they are not legitimately entitled to when you recognize the universal suffrage? And then finally, you said something which I thought was beautiful about kind of creating more community space where children can form relationships with trusted mm-hmm. adults. And it strikes me that over the last... I don't know, 20 or 30 years, that's really disappeared because of our concerns about children's safety, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, can you say something more about practically how you see that happening? Yeah. I mean, one one of the ways that I think that we can help to create that is by viewing schools as community centers and to make available services from 6 a.m. in the morning until 6 p.m. at night, and then occasionally evening activities that, you know, right now we're turning more and more schools into citadels, and we are at the same time that we're trying to secure them, you know, because of the current threats that, um, you know, that are so horrifically demonstrated by, you know, recent and current gun tragedies that um, we are starving them of funding. And so we're building up security to keep community members out, and yet we're not really keeping these communities, the, you know, the schools, rich with resources to make it a, an engaging and, and uh, growth-focused environment for our children. And I think that you know my approach would be to um, to do the opposite of that to create safe extensions into the community, to bring the community into the schools with the children, um, at the same time that we make sure that that schools are gun-free and that, you know, community members can't come into the settings with guns, which take, you know, some security measures. But when when you weigh the inconvenience of those gun safety measures and, you know, the time and and resources that it would take to set those up against the benefit of of having a flow between the community and the children that we'd be able to um, overcome that, that, you know, minor procedural challenge. Um, And and so things that I think about are, we talked today about high-quality, accessible childcare, that, you know, that can be based in or adjacent to schools, that we talked about the importance of sports and recreational activities. We talked, we didn't talk about, but we know the research that shows the importance of gardening, for example, connections with nature, the role of music and healing, and as well as um, intellectual development, that these are all enrichment activities that can be that can take part within a campus setting that was adequately funded where the government the community is investing in these community activities which are largely focused on children but would have a um, reverberating effect with the parents and families and community members who come into the setting, we see a shift away from churches and synagogues and temples. And so, you know, um, mosques, you know, how do we replace that intergenerational community connection that we used to rely on religious organizations for? And I, I think the answer is school campuses and making those community centers. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been really fascinating, really inspirational. Thank you.